John's Gospel, part 14. And the title this morning is Divine Grace and Divine Judgment both come through Jesus Christ. I don't know how popular that topic is. It seems to me to be inescapable. Divine grace and divine judgment both come through Jesus Christ. We're looking at John chapter 3, and I'm going to try and cover 14 to 21 today. Please have a Bible. We study phrase by phrase and words, and it's nice to have something that you can look down and study. Make sure that everything I'm telling you is in the Word. Don't believe me unless you can see that that's what God's Word says. John three fourteen to 21. And as Moses, comparison, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, so it's as so, as this is, so this is. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That links to the perishing part. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. See, there it is again. Perish, condemn, judgment. They're all in this John 3 thing. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, judgment, hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. This text is maybe more significant than we're used to thinking in this sense. It is the very first reference in John's gospel to eternal life. 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, evangelicals have pretty much worn that term out, but it was for the apostle John just a, a, a brand new term bursting with all sorts of fresh meaning and importance. This is the very first time that the Holy Spirit launched this concept in the apostles' mind. Now, that's one good reason we need to be clear as to what today's text is all about. That there is life in Jesus Christ is not a new thought in this gospel. John 1, 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of man. There it is. There's life in Jesus. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is all about life for mankind. What's new about our text today is 
John's going to start explaining in him was life, but how is this life imparted to Don Horbin? How is this divine life, in him was life, 1-4, how is it imparted to sinful people like we? And, and the reason this matters, I think, is our world is full of people who, while thinking warm thoughts about Jesus, liking Jesus, haven't a clue about how eternal life is imparted and how it must be received. How it's imparted, how it will be received. That's what's new in this text. There are all sorts of people, more and more people, who think that if we all just adopted the teachings of Jesus, we could really polish up the quality of life in this wicked world. Love one another, forgive your enemies, better to give than to receive. Blessed are the meek. People who think that if we could just forgive and love like Jesus did, well, then all the hate and war and crime would, if not completely vanish, at least be greatly diminished in this wicked world. So yes, Jesus seems to demonstrate a pretty nice life. Our text today is important because John tells us that none of these uh, self-adapted attempts has a ghost of a chance of success. Our text today teaches us the eternal life John first mentions. It can't come by just trying to adopt the moral principles of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. This text says Don Horbin's problem is entirely of a different nature than a lack of information. The eternal life that I need doesn't come from the moral principles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. None of those things will give us eternal life. Eternal life is brought in his person, not his teachings, and in his work. So our text today is John's continuation, an explanation of that principle laid down in 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And what John offers in today's text, in John 3.15, is the pathway to that life. How are sinners connected to eternal life? That's the issue. How are sinners connected to eternal life? And our text starts, surprisingly, with an old Old Testament incident and continues with a New Testament application. So point number one. What does eternal life have to do with snake-bitten people? John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm going to do a test. I want you all, to the best of your ability, out loud, to say the first six 
words, count them up in your head now before you start. The first six words of John 3.16. So think about what those words are. Have you got it? Everybody say out loud the first six words of John 3.16. Go. Did you notice the first word? What's the very first word? What's that there for? We just rattle it off, don't we? Especially if you learned it in the King James since a kid. For God so loved the world. And you, you hit God. For God so loved the world. Instead of for God so loved the world. And the reason the for is important is because it's the link between the rest of John 3.16 and what we just read in 14 and 15. In other words, when the Apostle John writes John 3.16, he's got 14 and 15 in his mind. That's what he's thinking about. And 14 and 15 don't seem to have anything to do with it. 14 and 15, one more time. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember that story? So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, and it continues. So these two verses are the next verses, the previous verses to John 3.16. But John 3.16 didn't just happen. John 3.16, my point is, doesn't come out of nowhere. John 3.16 comes out of this story about snakes. Who would have thought? Here's where John 3.16 comes from. Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no good food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord, I don't know if you're comfortable with this, not Satan. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel croaked. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. (laughs) Something's wrong here. For we have spoken out against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, (laughs) make a fiery serpent. (laughs) What? Make a fiery serpent and and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So, what are you going to do? God told him. Moses made a bronze serpent. He's got to be one, like seriously, he's got to be sitting as he's forging this thing. Okay, people dying. I'm, I'm making a snake out of metal, and I'm going to hang it up on a pole. Well, that's what God told me to do. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent 
to live. Now, see these words again? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Notice the comparison words. As Moses, so must the Son of Man. In other words, just as Moses lifted up that brass serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's a likeness between this and that. Everybody sees that, right? That's what he's saying. As A is, B is similar. Something else. The account of Moses and the lifting of the brass serpent on the pole explains, it, it, it explains what believing in Jesus means in John 3.15. Stay with me. John 3.15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, there's no break between 14 and 15. The likeness with Moses, the lifting up of the brass serpent, it continues. That means we're learning something important here. We're learning two very important things about what it means to believe in Jesus. We're telling people to believe in Jesus all the time. What are we asking them to do? First, we learn what God intended to do in sending his only son into this world. In other words, we learn what John means when he says the Father gave his only son, John 3.16. He sent his son into the world, John 3.17. But what we're seeing here with this comparison to the serpent, God didn't send, he didn't give 3.16 or send 3.17. He didn't send his son into the world on a lecture tour. No, the focus of our attention with the linking of these two events, the focus of our attention on the Son has to do with the way he was lifted up just as Moses lifted up that brass serpent in the wilderness on that pole. And so we're immediately forced to the surprising conclusion that the giving of healing, saving, eternal life comes from the death of the one bringing it. And without divine revelation like this, we'd never come to that conclusion. I said we learn two things from the way John links believing in Jesus with Moses lifting up the brass serpent in the wilderness. First is a surprising truth that the son came to be killed. The second thing we learn Boy, I hope I can make you see this. The son's death only benefits those who look upon it with expectation and faith. The son's death only benefits those who look upon it with expectation and faith. That's perhaps the most important link between the lifting up of Jesus on the cross and the lifting up of the brass serpent in the wilderness. Just the lifting up of that brass serpent on a pole, just the lifting up of that serpent on that pole in the wilderness does no good for anybody. 
The mere lifting up the serpent didn't help. There were people, lots of people, who died because they ignored or rejected the instruction to look at that serpent. Focus your attention. Concentrate. Believe. And if they didn't, they just died. Maybe the most important thing I can say to anybody here who's wondering, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Christ's death on the cross, like the lifting up of that serpent in the wilderness, Christ's death must be viewed as saving. This expectation is what John means when he talks about believing and what the New Testament means when it talks about faith. God requires the same expectation in looking to the sun on the cross that the Israelites expected looking to that brass serpent on the pole. If you don't want to look, you don't have to look, but don't blame God, you're going to perish. Point number two. I think maybe now we're in a better position to see why both love and judgment come through the gospel of the cross. Look at these verses together, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world, remember that, don't ever forget that word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It seems These are the options. Am I right? Am I right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. Remember, looking to the serpent. He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. First, bear with me, just a, a tiny little textual issue. It's not important. It's not crucial. There's debate. I'm only saying this because if you're doing deeper studies, you might come across this argument. If the rest, don't worry about it. The debate is whether verses 16 through 21 are the actual words of Jesus or the words of the Apostle John. The problem being, there were no such things as quotation marks in the first century in any language. If you have a red-letter New Testament, many of you do, and that's fine. Well, if you have a red-letter New Testament, the choice was made for you. You don't have to worry about it. The verses are all red print right up to the end of 21, and that's fine. I've personally never been fond of red-letter editions of the New Testament, so I've never been bothered by this. There are lots of people who love them. God bless you. That's fine. There's no theological issue at stake. Some doubt, myself included, some doubt that Jesus is the continuing speaker after verse 15. I mean, we know for sure Jesus speaks in verse 12, if I 
have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the I clearly is Jesus. There's no debate. It seems to me more probable that Jesus continues speaking in 13, 14, and 15 because Jesus is the only one who regularly uses that term, son of man. Jesus always uses it referring to himself. So I think probably Jesus is the one continuing to speak. 16 to 21, to me, have a different feel of maybe an outside party like John recording. They reflect theologically about the Son or the Son of God in a way that to me feels different from the previous verses. To me, 16 to 21 are more about the Son of God than by the Son of God. You can judge for yourself. Please don't be distracted. It's all God's inspired word. There's no theological issue at stake. Everybody understand? No panic. Remember, verse numbers and the color of print aren't in the original manuscripts at all. They're helpful as far as they go. But here is something very important and often overlooked. The most famous verse in the whole world begins with that nondescript little word for. I already talked about it. For God so loved the world. And that means this verse is continuing the previous thought rather than introducing a brand new one. And the complete sentence right before verse 16 covers all of 14 and 15. And it's all about Moses and the lifting up of that brass serpent in the wilderness and how that relates to believing in the Son of Man. And here's why all of that rambling detail, here's why it matters. We're studying a clump of three verses under this point. We're studying 16, 17, 18. Okay, that's what we're doing. And they clearly present not one, but two results from the sun being lifted up on the cross. There's the happy result of 16, eternal life. There's the tragic result of, 16, perishing, or being condemned, 18, or who does not believe is condemned already, 18. So there's these pleasant words, and there's these unpleasant words, and they're in the same text. You you, you can't just choose these ones and ignore these ones. We know that these tragic consequences, condemned, perishing. We know they're serious because obviously perishing must be more than mere physical death. We know that because even believers in Jesus die, right? So perishing has to be something more than just physical death. It's in the words of John being condemned eternally. But what does that have to do with 14 and 15? Moses and the lifting up of that brass serpent. Why does this wonderful, famous 16th verse begin with that pesky little boring word for linking it backwards? And here's the link. John is going to say something very important 
about the tragic consequences of not believing in the redemptive work of God's only Son on the cross. This is why it matters what I was talking about in those devotions where people want to play around with him bearing our sins on the cross. John's going to state quite assertively that the perishing, the condemnation, aren't the result of the Father's desire or the Son's desire. He's going to say emphatically in 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't on his mind at all. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So, So John, he presses home the important point that if people do perish, if they remain under condemnation, it's neither the Son's fault or the Father's fault. People don't have to remain under condemnation. They don't have to perish. In short, Father God's will is to save the whole world. Think how big the world is. Pick any country you want. Iraq, Afghanistan, India, Canada. How many people on this? The whole world. I want the whole world world saved by the death of my son on the cross. Let that register. And to prove this point, John, he points out that event, Moses, the raising of that brass serpent in the wilderness. That big brass serpent didn't make any of the Israelites sick. They were already sick when Moses built the serpent and hung it up on that pole. In fact, the whole reason God told Moses to build that brass serpent was to cure the people's sickness, not cause it. But here's the thing. If the people chose not to look to that brass serpent, if they just figured it all out, and couldn't accept the idea that what God provided and told them to do would work, if they didn't believe, if they didn't look, they would remain sick, and they would eventually die. And John's obvious point is Jesus didn't come to condemn any sinner or sinners. He never came to rub our noses in our misery. He came just like the lifting up of that brass serpent in the wilderness to be the cure the solution to give life to the worst, the sickest, the vilest sinners. But people have to focus their attention. They must believe. They have to pick a side. If they choose to remain stubborn, if they refuse to look to Christ, to believe in him, in John's famous words, well, then they remain under condemnation. But this isn't what the Father desires. Point number three, I'm getting close to done. Why does our world so broadly reject the gracious love of a good, redeeming God? Why would anybody? What's wrong here? Well, this is the judgment. There's that word again. The light has come into the world. Who's that? That's Jesus. 
The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Well, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, this is awfully strong, isn't it? Hates the light. Does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. These are really significant words. They're hard for us to fully appreciate because the church has had centuries of study and debate about them, but John was unfolding something radical when he began for the very first time to unpack the doctrine of what we call original sin, fallen nature. And he got it from Jesus himself. So we see two things happening at the very same time with the coming of the Word made flesh and his being lifted up on the cross like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. Two things happening. Both grace and blame become more vivid. The more light comes, the more responsibility we have. And here's John's point in these verses. Humankind has an unreasonable, humankind has an almost pathological hatred of Father God's love and grace in Jesus Christ, God the Son. We learn, surprisingly, surprisingly, we learn the presence of Jesus is not always a pleasant experience for sinful people. And John wants to keep the church from always blaming herself for this passionate rejection of the gospel of Christ. The fault isn't in the message. The fault is in the audience. Sin draws the sinner into a love of darkness and a hatred of light. That's exactly what the text says. Sin always makes us our own worst enemies. And the clearest manifestation of the self-destruction of sin is this neurotic turning away from the only source of deliverance. Why wouldn't dying people obey God and look to the serpent and be healed? Why wouldn't they? Do you like burying your loved ones? Made no sense in that numbers account. Why don't people look to Jesus, the Redeemer, who requires nothing but humble repentance? It makes no sense. Let me tell you how this was made so striking in my own understanding just recently. I heard it again on a popular primetime sitcom. You can hear the canned laughter in the background. I'm sorry for saying it this way. I just want you to feel what I heard. You could hear the canned laughter as one of the prominent characters blurted out the name of my Lord and Redeemer and said, Jesus Christ, you heard it. And immediately, I don't know why, immediately I just thought, like, why him? Why only Jesus? I mean, have you ever watched a movie, a sitcom, and had somebody in a fit of rage go, oh, Muhammad? Have you ever heard it? Buddha, that makes me mad. 
Why? It's what this John text is. Boy, the Bible is so true. They hate the light. Why is Jesus the only word we use to curse? I'll tell you why. They hate the light. Tell you why you don't hear Buddha or Muhammad. Neither one of them has an ounce of redemption to offer a sinful world. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. Just Jesus requires people to say, in view of your love and your grace and your mercy, I'm a sinner. Nothing I can do with this hard heart to fix myself. I just need to humble myself, lay down my life, and acknowledge you the way they looked at that serpent in the wilderness. There is no other cure but Jesus Christ. Everyone who does wicked things, let it register, church. Let it register. Hates. Who is this? It's Jesus. The curses of Jesus Christ only prove and validate exactly who he is and what he came to do. Muhammad is not God's light. Buddha is not God's light. And as a result, will not be hated and riled against. Period. Okay, four. Redeeming truth is what you do, not just what you know. But whoever does what is true, isn't that interesting? I would have said does what is right, wouldn't you? Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. There's a lot in there. I can't unpack the whole thing. Quickly, knowing Christ is a matter of right obeying, not just right thinking. So, so John shatters the common perceptions of today's church about what it means to believe in Jesus. All too often we hear of speaking the truth, learning the truth, knowing the truth, and that's not the path John takes. Believing in Jesus is empty. It'll be ghost-like when it only means agreeing with some religious beliefs handed down by parents, handed down by a church. The light only works, shines brightly, produces fruit in a joy-producing way when we counter-culturally live the truth we have in our minds. The context of these words about doing the truth makes clear exactly what the Apostle John has in mind. It's not earning merit. It's not works. Doing the truth is the exact opposite of those unbelievers. Doing the truth is the opposite of dodging the truth, especially the truth about my sin that I read about in that devotion. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray, continue to. In this strong sense, you have to do the truth for yourself. 
everyone has to encounter Christ. Have you ever had someone close to you and you wish you could hate their sin for them? You ever had anyone like that? I wish I could hate their emptiness for them. I wish I could, but you can't, you can't. In this strong sense, you have to do the truth. Hate sin for yourself, entering into truth for yourself, knowing what to do with how to say to yourself what you've known to be true for a long time. Every person, every person has to say, why in the world am I doing this to myself? How long am I going to flush my God-given life away? Don't waste your life. I hope you're not one of those tired, frustrated, paper-only Christians still waiting to discover the truth about Jesus. All those sick, dying people look to that brass serpent. For God so loved the world, Jesus died on the cross. Admit your sickness. Admit your need. Admit your inability to help yourself and look to Christ as the source of life. Grace, forgiveness for all your sins, and eternal life when Jesus comes again. Let's pray.